When was the last time you were tempted to tell a lie? Maybe the uh, better question is, when was the last time you gave in to that temptation? We live in a world, in a, in a nation, culture, that is enamored with lying. We see it all around us. Don't you see it in industry? Employers lie to employees. Employees lie to employers. You see it in, in the world of academia. You know, it's just back in the spring when the, the dean of admissions at MIT was forced to resign because it was discovered that she had falsified her, her resume. She's been there almost 30 years, almost 10 years in that job. And then it was discovered that the three universities she said she had degrees from, she didn't. I found intriguing that she had a degree from a university and she didn't put that on her resume, so I don't know what that means, but just a sense of, uh, of lying, and we see it in academia. We see it in our daily lives, in our culture, in our world, in the church. Someone said to me last week that, that the, among Christians, they said that, that there's often this, this mantra that, they will, that Christians will say that they've heard, that lying is an abomination unto the Lord and a very present help in time of trouble. We sort of have that mindset, right? It pervades our culture and our lives. It's become the norm to speak untruth. And because of this struggle in our human nature, God gives us in the Ten Commandments a commandment that addresses this condition. Again, of all the things that God could say to us in these Ten Commandments, it's not inconsequential that one of them is about lying. As God says to his people, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And I think the primary reason that God commands us and warns us about bearing false witness is because he knows that that kind of life leads to destruction and pain. It leads us away from God instead of toward God. And it is a warning that we need to heed. It seems to me that at the heart of, of our lying and our lives is really self-centeredness. Someone said there are five reasons why people lie. Sometimes it's for to get a good laugh, to avoid embarrassment, to escape punishment, in order to get money or, or something from someone or somewhere, and for malicious intent. And every one of those reasons has at the, at the base of it self-centeredness. I'm going to get what I want, and if that means I have to lie to do it, I'll do it. That person hurt me. I'm going to get back at them. I saw some people, sort of one of those on-the-street interviews this week, and, and uh, one person in response to a question said, when do I lie? Whenever I need to. There is that, that, that sense of, of, of self-protection that is inherent in the lies that we tell. Now, there may be some moments when we might say, well, lying is the lesser of two evils. Perhaps there are moments that arise like that. 
The classic example is the people uh, in, uh, in Europe that, that hid Jews from the Nazis. Corey Tenboom tells about that in her book, The Hiding Place, and there are other stories as well, where people, where people tell a lie in order to protect the Jews that they are hiding. What's interesting to me is that, you know, that was a very difficult decision to make, and, I, and, and the, the Tenboom family lamented that they needed to do that and repented of doing it. Because they didn't think to themselves, okay, lying is good. They said lying is, in this situation, the lesser of two evils. And there might be circumstances where you would, you would lie to protect a child or an innocent person. But I don't know that, I mean, you have to take those cases, I guess, one at a time. But I think there is something even in that that we need to be so cautious about. Because it is still the lesser of two evils. And, and there's something about even telling those kinds of lies that gets into us and makes the other kinds of lies a little less of a problem. And we already do that anyway. I mean, we already categorize our lies, right? I mean, there are, there are out and out lies. And it's funny that we have to actually, you know, modify, use modifiers to talk about them. And, and there's partial truth. There are omissions. You know, we don't tell it all. And there are white lies. Fibs. Lieettes. We might call them. <laughs> you know, we, we're so good at categorizing those things. And it gets into us. And I suspect that, that the struggle we have with, with lying seldom has anything to do with those exceptions we might talk about. It has to do with self-centeredness. Most of the time our lives are not about protecting other people, they're about protecting us. They're not about doing something for someone else, about doing something for us. It's about escaping something that we've gotten ourselves into. It's about covering up something that we've done. It's self-centeredness. And our, our human nature tends to default to self-centeredness. And it causes all kinds of problems for us, especially as God's people. Now, originally, most scholars believe that this commandment was specifically addressing the courtroom. That, that Jesus or God was saying, when you go into a courtroom, don't you dare lie. And of course, in, in our culture, witnesses are still important, but they, their importance is diminished a little bit because we have things like DNA and surveillance cameras and you know, things you can do with phone records and the internet and all of that. And so witnesses aren't quite as imperative as they were in that day. All they had were witnesses. And if you went into a courtroom and you lied so that an innocent person went free or a guilty person was convicted, God said, that's an abomination to me. And a lot of that has to do with the people who are able to influence witnesses. It tends to be the wealthy, the powerful, the influential, the people in the upper parts of the upper social classes. They're the ones who have the ability to influence witnesses. And so you're dealing with the issue of injustice in the courtroom. And that ought to be the one place where people can find what they need to find. It's one place of justice in a court of law, and it doesn't happen. And God and the prophets 
The psalmist, the writer of Proverbs, has a lot of sharp, pointed, penetrating things to say to us about that kind of life. God does build in a couple of, of, uh, of laws that help to hopefully convince people not to commit perjury. One of them is that uh, if it's a capital offense, if the person who is convicted and they're going to be stoned because of that, God says the two witnesses, and there always had to be two, the two witnesses are the ones who throw the first stones. And it's a bit unreal to sit in a courtroom and lie. Something else entirely, when you're standing outside with a stone in your hand and you hear that, the thud of that against a person's body and you see them bleed and you watch them fall to the ground, what was unreal becomes very real. And maybe that prevents some perjury. The other thing that God did was to say that if, if it was revealed that you had committed perjury, Whatever punishment that person was going to get or got in the court of that, in that case, you get. So if because of the, if they are on trial and their and their punishment was going to be thirty days in jail, and you can perjure yourself, you get thirty days in jail. If their punishment is stoning, you get stoned. That too might be a deterrent to people committing perjury. I don't know. It seems like something we ought to incorporate into our legal system, but I don't know if it would work or not. God takes seriously this issue of perjury, but God takes seriously the issue of lying in general. And the scriptures are filled with, with warnings about lying because it strikes to the very heart of who God is and who our enemy is. Jesus says that, that Satan is the father of lies. Sin enters the world on the wings of a lie. And virtually every sin anyone commits has somewhere within it a lie. Every one of the commandments in one way or another can be traced back to lying or has lying a part of it. We lie to, to tell ourselves that what we're doing is okay. It's no big deal. And after we've done it, we lie to cover it up. Lying's involved in the whole process. But lying is an abomination to God because it strikes at the very heart of who God is as the author of truth. God's identity is truth. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He is about truth. And God is calling us, his people, to be people of truth, not just in the courtroom, as important as that is, but in the church as well. I think bearing false witness against our neighbor strikes at the heart not only of who God is, but also of God's design and intent for his church and his people. In the book of Acts, the, the writer tells us that as the church begins to grow and expand, People sell off their possessions and their fields and their land and they bring the money and they lay it at the apostles' feet and then it gets distributed to people as they have need. And in chapter 5, we have a story of a couple, Ananias and Sapphira, who sell a piece of land and they bring the money to and lay it at the feet of Peter. Ananias comes first and he comes in and he sets this money down and he says, this is the money we, we got from selling our field. And the Holy Spirit speaks to Peter and says to him, 
That's not all of it. And Peter says to him, is this all of the money you got for the field? He says, yes, it is. It's all of it. And Peter confronts him and says, why are you lying to the Holy Spirit? And Ananias falls dead. They've barely gotten him out of the room when his wife comes in and Peter confronts her and says, is this all the money you got for the field? Yeah, that's all of it. She falls dead. Will Willimon in one of his books writes about that story. He said, when people who've read that book write him and say, why in the world do you write about that story? It has no relevance for our world. It, it, you know, it, it's harsh. He said, it is. He said, but one of the reasons I, I, I like that story is that it, it's, it's an incident of where you kind of spiced up a church business meeting and you know, something exciting happened for once. But he said, beyond that, it, it speaks to the imperative nature of truth in our church. God is so concerned about truth that when two prominent members of First Church lie, they die. And, and probably rightly so, we don't, we don't kill people for lying. It might be pretty empty in here if we did, but and, and we shouldn't do that. But there ought to be something within us that says we take this more seriously than we do. Because in the church, we're far more concerned about being pleasant and nice than we are about being truthful. And the church needs to be a place of truthfulness. Paul says that we should be truthful with each other because we're all members of one another. And how we treat each other is significant to our spiritual growth. And if we can't trust each relationships together, and that certainly includes the church. I think one of the common means that we bear false witness with one another in the church is in the issues of accountability and confrontation. We're hesitant to confront each other even when we see someone walking down a path of destruction. We watch their life, we watch the decisions they're making, and it's obvious the decisions they're making are leading them away from God and to great pain, and we step back and say, well, I don't want to get involved. I don't want to hurt their feelings. That's outside the bounds of what I should do. Because we're more concerned about pleasantness and niceness than we are about truthfulness. It's interesting to me that the, in the Septuagint, the word that is, that's used in the Greek for neighbor is the same word that Jesus uses when he tells the story of the Good Samaritan and asks, who is your neighbor? And we don't have to do violence to someone to harm them. Our inactivity toward them can harm them. And in the same way, we don't have to speak untruths about people. We don't have to say malicious lies about people to hurt them. Our silence can hurt them. When we see them heading down a path of destruction, and we don't say a word about it. We're responsible for that. Because we're more concerned about kindness and we don't want to hurt anyone's feelings and it's none of my business. And granted, we need to be careful. I mean, you know, there are people who are willing to tell us anything they think about us. And that's not what I'm talking about. We need to always check our motives and our attitudes 
And to make sure that whatever we say is done from a heart and a spirit of love and compassion. We confront because we love. And most of the time, we don't confront because we don't really care that much. Now, someone has said that the opposite of love is not hate. The opposite of love is apathy. And there's a lot of truth to that. If we love someone, we're willing to risk and get involved. And honestly, I think the issue we struggle with is not so much that we might hurt someone. It's not about them. It's about us. It's our self-centeredness. We don't want people to be angry at us. We want everyone to like us. We want to, have, we want to live safe lives. We don't want to risk. We don't want to stick out our necks because sometimes they get chopped off. And sometimes they do. Sometimes things backfire. But that doesn't mean we eliminate being truthful. And sometimes I think we're hesitant because when we address someone, when we speak the truth in love to someone, we are in essence saying, I'm willing to help you and to support you and to be there for you and to invest myself in you. And we're often too wrapped up in ourselves to do that. You can't, you can't do that with everyone. You have to have a relationship with people to, to, to have the, the right to speak to them. But I'm certain that there are all kinds of circumstances that we have seen and maybe see now where we know, we sense something isn't right. And we feel the prompting of God to say something. We need to say it. I was thinking this week about a couple of circumstances with people that I had to, to confront in, in another church where we served. and They were very difficult situations. I didn't want to do it. It was painful. I didn't, I, I, it was the last thing I wanted to do, and I tried to pray my way out of it. But I knew it was what I needed to do. And so I met with them you know, in these different situations. And one of them basically blew up. And it made me feel bad. But, you know, it was the kind of thing that needed to be done. And I tried my best to do it with love and with a spirit of fear and trembling. And before we left, I saw a little bit of progress. The other situation started out bad. And for a number of months, it was devastating. And then after a while, God began to work until there were miraculous things that happened. And not too long ago, I was talking with someone who was a part of that church, a mutual friend, and, and he said to me, he said, you don't know how many times this gentleman said to him, it took, I'm sure it took a lot of, of courage for Wes to come and talk to me, I have such respect for him for doing that, and God used that miraculously. You know, I didn't know how it would turn out. But I cared about those people, and, and I felt there was a need to say something. We need to be willing to be truthful with each, with each other. But we can only be truthful if we exist in a, in a spirit of openness and love and, and a willingness to support one another and care for one another. 
See, we think that, that, that bearing false witness leads to freedom when in reality it leads to bondage. Lies are difficult to contain. Lies enslave us. You can never relax. You always have to think, now what did I say to that person last time? How did I word that? What was my story? And then you're afraid, well, what if they talk to somebody else? The story's different. And you're constantly living in turmoil and fear that somebody else will find out. And, and often when you tell a lie, you have to tell a second one to cover it. And that's, you have to tell a third one to cover the second one and a fourth one to cover the third one and the fifth and fourth. And on and on it goes. And no wonder. No wonder Sir Walter Scott said that what a tangled web we weave when first we practice to deceive. That's what lying does to us. It enslaves us. Scott Peck, a number of years ago, wrote a book, People of the Lie. And as a psychiatrist, he talked about the, the people who were really wrestling with some deep, severe, mental, emotional issues. And he said, basically, their whole life, every one of them, was a lie. And they were entangled in lies so deeply, they couldn't even get, see their way out of it. And it was tearing them apart. But that bondage isn't just mental, it's spiritual. You get away with a lie, it's a little easier to tell the next one, a little easier to tell the next one, and all of a sudden you realize that, that your conscience has been seared, that your sensitivity to the Holy Spirit has been dulled, and that's a dangerous place to be. It affects us spiritually because in those moments, we don't want to be with God. God's going to convict us of our sin going to convict us of, of our lying, and we don't want that, so we, we back away from prayer, we back away from reading the scriptures, we back away from fellowship with other Christians, and from worship, and it moves us further and further away from God. We forget that these commandments are born out of God's heart of love. God is wanting to set us free from the bondage of our sin. And the heart of this commandment about bearing false witness is that God wants us to be free from that. He wants us to, be, to live a life of freedom that comes from living a life of truthfulness. And we need honesty to do that. I think that the Reformers did a lot of great things, but one of the, one of the issues that wasn't resolved through the, because of the Reformation was the whole idea of confession. You know, they removed confession as a part of the, the church structure, and, and rightly so, I guess, because of absolution and penance and the, and the problems with that and the, the irregularities and the abuses of it. But they didn't replace it. And, and people struggled with that. John Wesley came along and he realized that void in the church and in people's lives. And so when he established the Methodist movement, one of the central tenets of that was, was the sense of confessional accountability. And the groups that he formed, both the class meetings and the bands, were, were built around a spirit of confession. And, the, and the, the deeper you went into the movement, the more piercing the questions. The deeper you went in faith, the more pointed were those questions. Wesley was convinced that that was key to the movement. He took a lot of criticism for that, and he had to answer a lot of letters, and he wrote a number of pamphlets about it. But it was so important because he said, this sets people free. It's intriguing to me that, 
that Luther continued to confess his sins every day to another person. He says, one great remedy for afflicted consciences. And it's interesting that when you follow the history of the Methodist movement, after Wesley died and the years progressed, this issue of this idea of confessional accountability began to wane in the movement. And it's not a coincidence that at the same time, the movement, the power of the movement waned as well. And I think God wants the church to be a place of truthfulness. But it's got to be an atmosphere where we feel free to confess. And too often it's not. We need to, the church of all places ought to be the safe place, the sanctuary, where we can come and we can be honest with each other. And it may not be in a large group setting, but, but in some setting, a small group, another person, a couple of people, something. Or we can be honest because the enemy loves secrecy. You know, he uses secrecy to, to sort of make us get excited about some of the sins that we commit. But he also uses secrecy to push us deeper and deeper into that by telling us, if anybody knew, boy, you'd be in trouble. church needs to be a place of openness where we hold each other accountable in love and we help each other and we support each other of all places the church ought to be this kind of place because we need it we desperately need it and I suspect that when the church begins to be that kind of place people take Notice. Because people who are outside the church understand that something is going on there that we haven't seen before. There's something about those people of openness and truthfulness that the world needs and I think desires. In this world of deceit and deception, the truthfulness of a Christian's life is one of the most profound witnesses we have for God. You know, lying is all about reputation, and lies destroy reputation. I, I think the, the lies are often, if not most of the time, more of a problem than whatever it was we were trying to cover up with the lie. I think history would see Richard Nixon so much differently if he had just come out and said, okay, here's what happened. I think it would have changed the outcome of his presidency. And lots of other circumstances like that. And in a world where people are skeptical about truthfulness, in a world where people just sort of think that lying is the norm, truthfulness stands out. And if we don't stand out, what are we offering people? I think this comes out maybe most clearly in, in how we deal with, with people who are our opponents in the, in the issues of politics and theology and those kinds of things, because what we tend to do is to exaggerate the other people's position. We tend to take things to the furthest extreme and try to make them look as bad as we can so that people will jump on our bandwagon. And we justify that by saying, hey, we're on the side of good and right, so it's okay if we lie, if we exaggerate. If we stretch things. Because the end justifies the means. 
And people out there are going, how is that any different than what we're doing? Why would I want to do that? George Orwell said that in a time of universal deceit, telling the truth becomes a revolutionary act. And I think God is calling us, his people, to be revolutionaries for truthfulness. Ultimately, bearing false witness is not about a place, whether it's a courtroom or the church. It's about all of life, all the time, with everything we do and say. We tend to think our lives are compartmentalized, but they're not. We are whole people who need to be wholly committed to the truth. And it's interesting to me that in the book of Revelation, when when John describes the the 144,000 who I think represent the church through the ages, and he talks about all the things that they've been through, their their sufferings and their persecutions, and and how they had to stand up to the evil one and, and people of evil. And as he describes them, he says that these are people in which no deceit was found in their mouths. No deceit was found in their mouths. It's that central to the kingdom of God. Truthfulness. Bob Welch, in his book, A Man for All Seasons, tells a story about his, his son, who was at the time in seventh grade, in a, in a baseball game one summer afternoon. His son was about four foot nine, and uh, I can relate to that, because in seventh grade, I was about four foot nine. And he said, uh, you know, his, his lack of height was exaggerated by the fact that he was in a league of seventh and eighth graders. And of course, you... You know, when you get to boys at 7th and 8th grade, I mean, they can run the gamut. And this particular day, the 8th the, the grader who was pitching was about 5 foot 9. And, and he was throwing smoke. I mean, fast pitches. It looked like BBs coming in there. And uh, his son, Jason, stepped up to the plate, and the first pitch came smoking in. And he said, I don't even think Jason saw it. It was coming that fast. And he said, umpire, strike one. Pitcher winds up, throws again, same thing, strike two. Third pitch gets away from the pitcher. He said, I don't think he meant to, but it came right at Jason. And he ducked, bat went flying, helmet bouncing across the ground. The kid ends up face down in the dirt. The umpire says, son, take your base. He said, I'm thinking to myself, oh, good. He gets out of there, you know. He got the first base, you know, great, wonderful, you know, this is terrific. I said, I'm really grateful. You know, he stood in there for three pitches. Go take your base. He said, I realize I'm thinking about this. There's some commotion going on at home plate. And I walked a little bit closer. He was coaching third base. He was, I walked a little closer, and I heard my son say to him, but sir, it didn't hit me. So I'm thinking to myself, what are you, nuts? <laughs> take your base. <laughs> and the umpire says to him, he says, son, take your base. He goes, but sir, it didn't hit me. And, of course, the umpire is dumbfounded by this. And he looks out at the base on the, I don't know. He says, sir, it didn't hit me. He said, all right. One ball, two strikes. Jason steps back in. Pitcher winds up and throws another one. You know, just smoking his pitch right down the middle. 
And this time Jason swings. And he drives the ball into left center field for a double. And Bob Stout standing at third base and the opposing coach, didn't know this was my son, was standing just a few feet behind me and I could see out of the corner of my eye, I watched him, he spit out his sunflower seeds and he sort of said to himself, but loud enough that he could hear, man, you gotta love that. And we do. But the truth is, it doesn't always turn out that way. Sometimes telling a lie gets us ahead. And sometimes telling the truth is more painful than we could have imagined. But we're so committed to truth. Because God is truth and because it's the way to freedom and life. That we want our natural impulse to be truthfulness. And my prayer is that with one another, with ourselves, and before God, and with everyone else, truthfulness will indeed be our natural response. Father, that's our prayer today. Forgive us when we have succumbed to the temptation of bearing false witness against one another, either with our words or with our silence. Make us people committed to truthfulness because we know that is central to your kingdom. In the name of Christ Jesus.